The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. You don't want it. You don't need it. But you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. This review via Apple Podcasts from SFSkins56, quote, I am a lifelong Washington fan, born and raised in New Mexico, basically cowboy country. I really enjoy the show and all the great information. Listen daily on my work commute. Thanks for the great show. Uh, Thank you, SFSkins56. He rated us five stars, which we appreciate and wrote uh, a quick review for those that haven't done it. If you have time and you don't mind, rate us and review us, especially on Apple or anywhere else you listen to this podcast that allows you to rate uh, and review us. It is huge for us uh, when you do that. On the show today, Santana Moss will join us uh, and we will talk to Santana about the team, about the offense in particular, get his thoughts on Jahan Dotson, and I'm sure the conversation will lead to many other places as well. Uh, For those of you in the mid-Atlantic and Northeast, get ready. A brutally hot weekend, record-setting heat. Jason Salmonow, part of the Capital Weather Gang, is going to be a guest on the podcast, uh, as will Eddie C., our Triple Crown uh, expert analysis uh, analyst and handicapper. Um, Eddie C. will join us later in the show as well to talk about tomorrow's Preakness uh, at Pimlico. Uh, I want to start with this quick tweet that I got from uh, my man Disco um, at Disco5. Kevin, comma, Jim Ursay and Chris Ballard have ripped Carson Wentz at every turn. Your take is interesting because you have eviscerated Snyder for smear campaigns he's done in the past. But somehow you think Ursay's smear campaign is not anger-driven. Uh, thank you. You can tweet me at Kevin Sheehan, DC. I didn't say that Ursay's comments about Carson Wentz Uh, weren't somehow anger-driven. In fact, I would guess that a lot of it is anger-driven based on the fact that Carson Wentz wasn't vaccinated. I don't know that for a fact, um, but I've certainly surmised that from some of the commentary on why Ursay has ripped Carson Wentz. I have just said uh, many times that you're being naive if you think the only reason that Carson Wentz was made available after the Colts traded a first and third round pick to the Philadelphia Eagles is because the owner had some beef with him. 
It was more than that. It was more than that in Philadelphia. There's a track record here of two consecutive seasons where teams that were heavily invested in this player didn't want him anymore. And then on top of that, uh, there is an indication, there is evidence that Washington may have been the only team in the league willing to give up anything for him and that he was on his way to waivers. So to me, that is red flagish, And that's what I've said. I've also said simultaneously that I think Carson Wentz is talented. Uh, there was a time, certainly when he was in Philadelphia, where we as Washington fans said, oh my God, Philly got it right on the quarterback. And he's going to be a dominant quarterback in the division for years to come. Uh, it's clear to me that he's got more talent and more ability and probably will produce at a higher level than what they've had here recently. Uh, but no, I, um, I, I don't think uh, for a second that somehow Jim Irsay isn't angry um, in his, yes, you know, smear campaign of Carson Wentz, which, by the way, Chris Ballard has participated in to a certain extent as well. But look, he can do it on the field and make us all forget the past, including the people that let him go. Now, Carson Wentz yesterday was on the Colin Cowherd show. I think Colin Cowherd's show is on Fox um, Sports Network. I think that's where he is right now. Um, Cowherd asked him about the Jim Ursay comments about uh, it being a mistake, the Carson Wentz era being a mistake. This is how Carson Wentz handled uh, that question and answer. When Jim Ursay says, hey, we made a mistake, I'm like, ow, ow, that's kind of per- like that. That hurts a little, right? <laughs> I mean, it is what it is. You know, everyone's entitled to their own opinion. Um, you know, I, I thought. Last year was a was a really fun year. Um, you know, I thought we we did some incredible things. Uh, came up short at the end. Obviously, I struggled down down the stretch there, and timing was was poor. Um, but yeah, that I didn't expect that. I didn't expect that things unfold the way they did. And you know, I thought things were were in a pretty good place there. I had awesome relationships with with every single person in that building. Can't say enough good things about um, the people over there. And um, yeah, kind of came out of left field. You know, he's he's entitled to his own opinion, and you know. He's entitled to do what he wants with his football team. High road for Carson Wentz, the way he handled that answer. Uh, I really hope that what we've seen, you know, more often than not um, over the last two years with a completely new group in the organization, both on the business side uh, and on the football side, um, I would like to see, you know, more headlines on the field than off the field and avoiding the headlines off the field. Now, with the owner there, that's impossible. We all understand that. But um, the players can control that. And that was a take the high road answer from Carson Wentz. And I completely appreciate that and am encouraged by that. And uh, at the same time, I have no idea what that will mean to his performance on the field. Uh, Perhaps he is growing and maturing and has learned from the experience of the last two organizations he's been with. Maybe there's some recognition that this may be the last chance to be a bona fide default starter in the NFL, uh, that if it doesn't work out in Washington, he's destined to be a backup or worse 
uh, maybe all of the, uh, that uh, 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 that's happened here in the last two years will lead to the opportunity, one last opportunity with a team that needs him and he needs them here in Washington, and it will work out. Um, but I liked the answer from Carson Wentz there, uh, but I will like it more uh, if he performs on the field uh, and uh, is you know a, a stellar guy in the locker room because at that position there's some importance attached to that. Not necessarily you know a vocal leader or even the leader, um, but someone who isn't polarizing or worse. And hopefully we will see that uh, in Carson Wentz here in Washington. But I liked that answer a lot. Uh, before we get to to Santana Moss, two things. One. I'm not going to spend any time on this show talking about something that's highly entertaining, and that is the Nick Saban, Jimbo Fisher back and forth. Uh, You know, Nick Saban accusing Jimbo Fisher of buying players and Jimbo Fisher's uh, unbelievable, you know, nine to 10 minute press conference yesterday ripping Nick Saban. But I would urge you to go to theteam980.com and listen to my interview in the third hour of the show with Mark Schlebaugh from ESPN because I think Mark did a really good job of explaining just how crazy the world of college sports is right now um, as it relates to name, image, and likeness, NIL, uh, and what's going on out there. Um, uh, We'll have time next week uh, to circle back to this. I'd rather do it with Tommy on the show where we can have a conversation uh, about it. But needless to say, in the minimal conversation we've had um, over the months um, about NIL, uh, there aren't a lot of rules out there, and the NCAA isn't really uh, able to enforce anything. And you've got uh, schools with big NIL budgets because they've got big-time boosters who are putting that money into that budget and others that don't have the same ability. Texas, A&H, Texas A&M had one of the all-time great recruiting classes uh, and Nick Saban didn't like it at all. Um, but listen to the conversation that, that I had this morning on the team980.com third hour of the show. You can download the Odyssey app or go right to the team980.com and click on Kevin Sheehan's show and listen to the third hour of the show. The interview with Mark Schlebaugh uh, was really good. Um, last thing that I want to get to uh, before, actually two more things that I want to get to before Santana Moss. One is I love Marcus Smart. I just love the way he plays. He plays like, you know, in so many ways, the players that I really like in the NBA, Kawhi Leonard, Jimmy Butler. But last night, the return of Marcus Smart and Al Horford uh, made uh, a significant difference as Boston absolutely hammered Miami in Game 2 in a continuation of NBA games that are just just incredibly lopsided. That was a 25-point win. Uh, Game 1 the night before um, between Dallas and Golden State was also a 25-point margin of of, of victory. Uh, On Tuesday night, Game 1 was an 11-point win. The two Game 7s on Sunday, uh, you had a 28-point win and a 33-point win. I mean, it's been well over a week since the last competitive game in the NBA playoffs. I know these series are going, a lot of them are going six or seven games, which is great, 
But, you know, for people to really get engaged with the NBA playoffs, you've got to have some compelling games, some close games. You've had some great individual performances, but typically as part of a blowout win. I don't have any thoughts or any answers as to why the NBA playoff games have been so lopsided. Um, it's not necessarily home court advantage. It doesn't necessarily have anything to do with you know games in which some players are there and some aren't. Some of that has been in play. Um, but man, we have seen, I think, it feels like an unprecedented run of you know double digit to really 25 plus point victories and or losses in the NBA playoffs. All right, lastly, I wanted to read this tweet from Pedro on Twitter. My son sent me this Twitter thread last night and said, look at this. They're talking about something you said. Did you really say this? Pedro um, on Twitter tweeted, did Kevin Sheehan really just say the Washington that Washington arguably has the worst defense on paper in the NFC East? I don't think I can take him seriously after that. Um, thank you. Uh, Pedro uh, for the tweet. Um, He didn't tweet it to me. My son sent me this long thread and said, read through this. I read through some of the answers from some of you. Uh, Yeah, I did say that. Um, And it wasn't a hot take. You know, I don't really do hot takes. Um, Maybe I have on occasion on a slow day. Um, But for the most part, when you get my uh, thoughts Um, they are what they are in that moment. They're changeable. There's no doubt. I mean, more information, more thought, more games, more data. Uh, I've changed my mind, um, over the course of time. And I may change my mind uh, about what Washington's defense is in the NFC East, but not before the season. We'll have to see some games first, but yeah, I've said that, you know, I've said that in the context, the context being that it's really incredible that a year ago we were so confident about the defense and not very confident about the offense, even though there was more confidence because Ryan Fitzpatrick was coming off two really good seasons and you know they had uh, signed Curtis Samuel. But the defense, of course, we know what everybody thought of the defense last year. We don't need to rehash it. And then the defense didn't have a very good year. In fact, it, it had a dreadful year. You know, it was the 27th-ranked defense overall in DVOA and Football Outsiders DVOA, 31st-ranked defense on third down. And, yeah, there were injuries, but there were more important injuries offensively. They lost their starting quarterback for the year. They lost Curtis Samuel, J.D. McKissick, Logan Thomas. Lots more injuries and important injuries on offense. Certainly the loss of Chase Young and Montez Sweat. Chase Young for the back half of the season, Sweat for some games. It hurt, but neither one of them was playing very well. Chase Young was having a subpar sophomore season when he got hurt. And sure, defensively, we know the schedule that they faced, but the NFC East teams faced similar schedules, similar quarterbacks. Now, Washington's three games um, that were different from the Giants, Cowboys, and Eagles, because there are only three games that are different. Um, the, you know, Each division team plays 14 of its 17 games against the same opponents. Well, Washington's other three games were against Aaron Rodgers, Uh, Josh Allen, Buffalo, 
and Russell Wilson. Now, Russell Wilson was still, you know, not 100% healthy. They kind of caught Russell Wilson in Seattle at the right time. They weren't a very good team. Wilson had come off the injury and played poorly, and really until the final drive of that Monday night game hadn't played well at all since returning from injury. Um, But, no, the defense was dreadful last year. It was dreadful. There's no other way to really size it up. You can focus on how good of a rush defense they had, but they couldn't get off the field. And, yeah, the offense didn't help, um, but there were some games where the offense helped, and it still didn't help the defense. Now, predicting next year, um, the context was, isn't it incredible You know what a, what, a, what a difference a year makes? Last year, we're so confident about the defense, even with the schedule it was going to face, not as confident about the offense, and I feel differently this year, and I think many of you do as well. It's like they have a lot of skill position talent on offense. They've got an upgraded quarterback. They've got a decent offensive line, and even if it's less talented than it was a year ago, that may be the best position coach on the team, John Matsko, I think Randy Jordan is phenomenal as well. Um, and I believe in Scott Turner. I know uh, you know not everybody does, but I do. Um, and so I think they've got a chance to be really good offensively or a lot better than they've been. And the Seth Walder analytics guy at ESPN predicted Washington's offense to be number 19 in the league, predicted Washington's defense to be 26th in the league, tied with the Giants. He had both the Eagles and the Cowboys defenses ahead of Washington's. Games aren't played on paper. I understand that. Just like you can't count up wins and losses based on a schedule in May. Most of you understand that. But on paper, in terms of evaluating defensive talent, and by the way, defensive coaching staffs, right now, Dallas and Philadelphia both have better defenses than Washington. Philadelphia's added a ton. Jordan Davis, N'Kobe Dean, Hassan Reddick. They'll get Brandon Graham back if they're healthy. Um, They just added James Bradbury to go with Darius Slay at the corners. Dallas has the returning defensive rookie of the year, along with Leighton Vander Esch and, and what they've got up front and Trayvon Diggs. Yeah, I think Dallas and Philadelphia are better defensively right now than Washington is. Um, And Washington has holes. I mean, they lost depth along the strength of their defense, their defensive line. We We have no idea what the answers are at linebacker. And the secondary was not very good last year, and it's got average talent. I like Fuller. I like Curl. I'm not so sure about Jackson. I kind of like Benjamin St. Juice's talent, but he was concussed, you know, last year and didn't play as much. And I have no idea what Percy Butler is going to bring. Um, but no, not a hot take. Actually, a pretty reasonable take, I would think, um, based on uh, looking at the rosters. And by the way, the Giant defense has talent A and B. You know, got Wink Martindale to be the defensive coordinator with Brian Dable in his first season as the Giants head coach. So last year, Ivan uh, tweeted this as an answer to Pedro's tweet um, about, you know, I don't think I can take Sheehan seriously after he said that Washington may have the worst defense on paper in the NFC East, which is 100% true. 
Um, it is true if you're comparing it. Of course, it's a subjective exercise. But on the um, objective uh, exercise of looking at what we had last year compared to the rest of the division and understanding that they lost more on defense than they acquired other than getting some guys back from injury and maybe playing a lesser schedule. Ivan tweeted, points allowed, yards allowed, yards per offensive play, passing TDs, yards after catch, interceptions, net yards, first down passing, commanders were last in all of those categories. And we know what they were on third down. Trending at one point through the first five games as the worst third down defense in the history of the league. It was a bad defense last year. It was the biggest shock and the biggest disappointment of last year. It also, like on offense, provides a huge realistic opportunity for major improvement. Both sides of the ball should be majorly improved from last year. It's not saying much. They should be better on offense because they're healthier, because they've got an upgraded quarterback. They should be better on defense because, really, how could they be much worse? I'm counting on Chase Young to have a, a, a big-time you know, year following last year's disappointment, assuming health. I already think Montez Sweat is really good, and you know what I think of John Allen. I think he's the class of this organization, along with Terry McLaurin. And on top of being the class of the organization, he's a great player. Deron Payne is in a contract year, potentially. I don't think they're going to sign him. So he enters this year without having an extension and not being under contract for 2023 and beyond. He's got every incentive to up his play and be more consistent. When we come back, Santana Moss will be my guest right after these words from a few of our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You know, if I would have applied myself, I could have gone to the NBA. You think so? Yeah, I think so. But it's just like, it's been done. You know, I didn't want to, I was like, I don't want to be a follower. Hi, I'm Jason Concepcion. And I'm Shea Serrano. And we are back. 
We have a new podcast from Wondery. It's called Six Trophies. Woo! And it's the f-ing best. Each week, Chase Serrano and I are combing through all the NBA storylines, finding the best, most interesting, most compelling stories, and then handing out six pop culture-themed trophies for six basketball-related activities. Trophies like the Dominic Toretto I Live My Life a Quarter Mile at a Time trophy, which is given to someone who made a short-term decision with no regard for future consequence. Or the Christopher Nolan Tenet trophy, which is given to someone who did something that we didn't understand. Catalina Wine Mixer trophy. Ooh, the Lauren Hill, you might win some, but you just lost one trophy. And what's more, the NBA playoffs are here, so you want to make Six Trophies your go-to companion podcast through all the craziness. Follow Six Trophies on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Yeah, that was in 2006 in overtime. Brunel to our next guest, Santana Moss, who broke away and scored uh, the winning touchdown to beat Jacksonville in overtime. That's the home opener for Washington this year. And already, Santana, people have the commanders at 1-0 and to start the season. It's amazing because the NFL's you know, schedule is kind of hard to figure out in advance, but don't you have this yeah. sense that people already think that 1-0 and is, is a given? I mean, yeah, but I was just talking. I was just speaking on this t- two days ago, and I'm like, you can't get ahead of yourself. No team is going to basically be judged off what they did the previous year. And just like for us, we don't want to be judged as who we were last year. So, Yes, being optimistic is the best way to go about it and say, I feel like we have a great chance to win it, but you can't, you know, count the eggs before they hatch. Yeah. Um, by the way, that, that game was a 60-yard touchdown, 68-yard touchdown pass in overtime, 36-30 to 30, uh, over a Jacksonville team that had Byron Leftwich as their starting quarterback, and Brunel threw three touchdowns, including two to you in that game. All right, so Santana's on the show with us today. Um, I know that uh, one of the things people want to hear from you is about Jahan Dotson and the draft, but I want to start with this because you get asked this every single day, I bet, and from fans that run into you, and they'll say, what kind of team are we going to have next year? What's your answer right now on May 20th as to what kind of team Washington is going to have next year? Well, one of the things that I say, and um, just from, from what I've been seeing, I, I can't give them that. But one thing I do feel that from watching the, the coaching staff develop these guys, I think they'll be a much better team next year. Um, that's, that I do know. I think last year our defense really played um, subpar. You know, that they, shouldn't, they should have played way better than they did. And then when you count the COVID stuff that happened late in the season and some of the key guys been missing – you could kind of blame some of that for being the reason, but I do believe when you when you have such a stout lineup up front, these guys have to have a a, a, a better season this time around, you know. So uh, with that alone, and then when you look at Carson Wentz, look, you know, I, I understand the flack and everything people want to throw on this guy and, and, and uh, give him, but I feel that for NFL players, this is something I always tell folks: every year is another year for us to improve or put whatever we did last year behind us. And we always talk about fails and losses and how you learn from those. Do you think Carson Wentz haven't learned from those 
couple of years where people feel that he he was a bust or that he failed, you know. So I'm I'm sure coming to to this season, he has a lot that he wants to get ahead of by putting in the preparation, being with his coaching staff, doing what's asked so he can overcome some of the things that probably hindered him last year or the year before when he was in Philly. So I just think also having him and having a healthy Carson Wentz make us at least three games better. Three games better. That that would that would make it worth it. You know, if if he's three games yeah. better, that puts you at ten wins and puts you in the postseason. You think Thank Carson you. Wentz is is worth three games to Washington in twenty twenty two? Yes, I think you know. Just looking back at you know one of the things that me and Logan talked about, me and Logan Paulson talked about on one of our shows. We were just talking about from what happened, last, what transpired last season with us, and I feel like it was three games in there that if we had went. As the quarterback, we would we could have had a chance to win those games, and that would have made us a better team probably in the postseason. So, you know, fast forward to now, I'm pretty sure this team is trying to, you know, like I said before, every year is a new year, so you put all that behind you, and you're trying to win win them all. Your, your whole goal is to win every game you go out there and line up, but that's not realistic. You know what I mean? You're going to win some, you're going to lose some, but I believe that if Carson get in here and do what he's supposed to do, Listen to this coaching staff. I think this coaching staff might be one of the best, better coaching staffs for him. I understand that the guy that he was with last year in Indy was his whisper when he was with Philly, so people feel like that should have jailed too. And I don't, I don't blame everything that happened in Indy on Carson. I, you know, I tell folks, the quarterbacks get a lot of blame, but you got to understand, the quarterbacks can't make tackles. They don't stop the other teams from scoring. So at the end of the day, the defense has to step up too in some of those games. But I just believe in Ron and what he's doing with some of these guys. I think Ron is one of the coaches that, Carson will find a way to play play good for because Ron understands and he know how to coach guys. He know how to will them to be a better you know uh, player player in person. You're you know I haven't talked to you in a while. You're sounding very optimistic about Carson Wentz, and I'm not suggesting that it's only because he's obviously better than what they've had here in recent years. But it sounds to me like. You like the player. Like if he had gotten traded to another team, you know, a, another decent team or an average rostered team, you would have thought that that team got them got themselves a good quarterback. Is that fair? You you really like the player? Listen, listen. I liked Carson when he was in Philly. I thought that the only thing that kept Carson from being a good player was Carson. I thought that he did things that time that was uncharacteristic at the position. But if you think about it, when he came out of college, that's some of the things he did in college. But what folks fail to realize, when you get into the NFL, there comes a curve that you have to mature and say, I have to put whatever I did in the past behind me, especially if it's not going to help me succeed or be better at that position. I think he got away with a lot of stuff when he was healthier before the knee injury that he thought he could still do post-knee injury, back injury. So that's one of the reasons why I was kind of, you know, I'm, 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 I've been a fan of him. I like his arm strength. I like the deep ball with Carson. I like that he can ad-lib a little bit and be a little tele-Heineke and still get the ball to you downfield, not have to worry about, you know, his arm can't, you know, uh, not making it there. So those are some of the things that stand out to me being a receiver, you know, because like I said before, as a receiver, I've I've had 15 or more quarterbacks. And (laughs) if one of them, if I had four years with a Carson Wentz caliber quarterback in those years, then maybe my numbers would be a lot more better because I remember even in college when I had four quarterbacks in four years, the quarterbacks that was able to get the ball to me downfield when when they ad-libbed or when things broke down, 
those are the guys I, I played well with because they, they understood and I understood that now when things break down, like watch Antonio Brown. Most of the yards Antonio Brown made when he was in Pittsburgh was ad-lib. It was second and third route. It was when Ben Roethlisberger came out of the pocket and now he's trying to make something happen and he just made a play because he know I'm going to count on my guy who's going to come up with the ball. So that's the kind of game that Carson Wentz can bring us. But I'm not, I'm not hoping he plays that kind of football here. I'm hoping that he can settle down and listen to coaches, this, this coaching staff, and, and hopefully they coach him up well to know that, look, save yourself for the next play. If it's not there, let's go to check down, hit the guys out to the backfield, and save yourself for the next play because I feel he has, a, he has a slew of guys around him that can make plays for him, and he don't have to risk it in one play. How many quarterbacks did you play with here? To be exact, 15, I know for a fact. But I know it's a couple of guys here and there that didn't probably have long seasons, right. but they played a game or two with me, you know. But but I know for sure 15. So, you know, I know many of them, and I could rip off the names of many of them right now, as many fans could, and you could as well. And, you know, one of the things that you dealt with uh, as a player here uh, and as a receiver here were lots of different personalities at quarterback as well, yeah. some that didn't gel yeah. well with the with you and the the locker room and others that did and this is some of the criticism you know regardless of whether it's exaggerated or you believe it or not the bottom line is there have been a lot of reports there have been a lot of players that have come out and said that he, you know the leadership was lacking when it came to Carson Wentz in Philadelphia in particular so what's your gut feel on the non-football part of Wentz well, I don't care about – I don't need a friend. I don't need a, a buddy. I don't need none of that. All I need is a guy to come out and do his job. You don't have to be a rah-rah quarterback. You don't have to be a guy that I, that I look into your eyes in the fourth quarter and say, give me something. No, because you can look into me and my eyes and all these guys in this huddle and know that we're going to be there for you. I, I think that's overrated a little bit because, folks, nowadays everything is overrated. You can't say much. You can't do much. Everybody has something to say about something. Back when we played, it wasn't all that. We had me, myself, Portis, Cooley, back in those days when we were playing good football. And it didn't matter what quarterback was in that huddle. He knew that he had three guys that were going to go out and bust their behind and make something happen. So that's when we were playing good football. Now, the years after that, when we had younger quarterbacks and you had to kind of, you know, coach them up every play, it, it's kind of hard to really – you know, let that guy know that he can lean on a, a veteran or he can lean because they, they're too much. They, they're thinking of coaching. They have a coach in their ear the whole time. So they're trying to be, you know, correct when you don't have to be correct playing this game. Just make the play. So when it comes down to Carson Wentz, I don't care about the lack of or the, you know, or do we have enough, you know, uh, character or leadership skills. I just want you to go out there and know that between these lines that we're on the field and for 60 minutes, get the ball to the open guy and run the play that's designed. And when things all break down, be special if you can and get rid of the football. If he can do that, man, we can play some good football. Because like I said before, he have enough guys around him that hopefully, you know, I'm predicting a little bit that these, this staff is going to say, look, we're not going to act much. We're going to design this offense enough to where that he knows that, look, you get the ball to this guy, you get the ball to this guy, sit back and watch them do their thing. You know what I'm saying? And that's what I'm hoping for because I feel that, with all that said and done, even if it's not that way, Carson Wentz has enough intangibles at the quarterback position that I still think he can still be 
one of the better quarterbacks in our division. So one of the things, and I and I did this on radio the other day, talking about kind of the skill position group around Carson Wentz in the division, it might be right up there with Philadelphia, with Amari Cooper and, and Cedric yeah. Wilson gone in Dallas. You know, the combination of Terry McLaurin and Curtis Samuel and Jahan Dotson and Deami Brown mm-hmm. and Logan Thomas, if he comes back healthy, mm-hmm. and Gibson, McKissick, and and Robinson, the, the third-round pick from Bama. Um Scott Turner and Carson Wentz have plenty, right, in terms of skill, position, playmaking, talent to work with. You agree with that, right? They have a plethora of talent. You know, that's what makes me optimistic. That's what makes me, you know, right now walking around my, uh, you know, this room talking to you because I can really see it. But like I said before, as a player, if I hear those names and I'm a part of this team, like I was just telling um, just to Terry the other day, I saw Terry at an outing, and I'm like, bro, you don't understand, or you may understand, that having Dotson in your room just elevated everybody else's game. Because we already know what you can do, you know? We know that you come to play every year. And sooner or later, you know what I mean, these other guys who didn't show up last year, they're either going to be third and fourth fiddles, or they're going to say, look, we're not going to let this young kid, regardless of him being a first-round draft pick, we're going to step our game up to a point to where we got to either get some of that action too, or he's going to have to come come in until he's caught up to speed with us because they have a, they have a, a jump on him by them being professionals a little longer than him. So um, I remember being in those shoes, being a young guy, and I didn't come in with high expectations to play that year. I didn't know. You know, I didn't have a care in the world about how I went down. I knew I was going to play until I got hurt, you know, in a, a preseason practice. But just watching those guys, that core names that you talked about, man, these guys come in ready. That 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 group alone, that offensive side of the ball, man, they should be hitting on all cylinders. Knowing what we have up front, to, you know, I feel like that we have enough depth on our line that we can honestly say that Carson has someone in front of him to be protective of. I mean, that that's going to be protective of him, and these guys can go out there and do what they do and make plays. I can tell you this, and I think you know this too. The optimism about the team next year stems from the fact that they really believe they could be very dynamic offensively uh, yep. and that this could be a whole new um, offensive uh, you know, team with you know, the skill position players but also with an upgraded quarterback. All right, before we get to you know, how you think everybody will be used, Jahan Dotson, their first-round pick out of Penn State, you're one of the players that Dotson's been comped to um, in terms of his style, what do you see when you see Jahan Dotson? You know, um, they, they're going to do that. I mean, folks are going to always kind of try to say, you know, compare him to someone that's been here. Uh, when I talked to him, I sat down with him and I asked him who was the guy that he watched that, you know, basically he kind of mimicked his game off of. And he told me Deshaun Jackson was the guy he looked up to. Now, he might not look like Deshaun Jackson because not too many guys can look effortlessly you know, uh, how he does things when it comes to running. He just runs with a different kind of, you know, uh, glide than, than a lot of guys in his league. But the one thing that I, that stood out to me about uh, Dotson was his route running. You know, that's something that I don't get a lot of credit for. But if you turn on the film, you can see how I emphasize separation. That's what he emphasized. He, I watched him in college a couple of games. I'm like, this dude is always open. And when you watch the route, he's giving you that first, that, that when, when he puts that foot in the ground, to separate when he's giving you that that last stick, he's he, he's really giving you something that you can 
think that he's going somewhere else. And that's what stood out to me, just the ability to separate. And then second to none, I think he has some of the best when it comes to, you know, attacking the ball. He attacks it just like Terry does. But he, he's a guy that's already coming in, I think, that probably have a little jump when it comes to uh, being a receiver. He's more polished. He's, he's, a, he's a hands catcher. He, you know, he has right. great radius, you know, with his arms and stuff like that. And then he has enough speed to get away from you. He might not probably be as fast as Terry. I think Terry's more of a 4-3 guy. He ran 4-4 coming out. But when you put all that together, he's a complete receiver. And then you see that he can, he can, he can run punt. So that's something that, you know, you can compare me with because I did all those things too. I'm, I, have a, I, I have a different, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, body, you know, our body type's a lot different. He's a more leaner guy, probably a little taller. I was a little more stocky guy, you know, and a little compact. So that's why I don't really sit out there and say, you know, you can compare him to me. But when it comes down to the way he makes plays, man, hey, hey, put my name in the box with him, you know what I mean? But I'm hoping that he can come and be that person, you know, out the gate with us because I think we really need it. And like I said before, all he's going to do is kind of, you know, make all those guys in that room step their game up. You know, we've talked about this before, but I loved it when they put you back on punts, whether it was Joe or Zorn or anybody. I loved Mm -hmm. when they put you back on punts because I always felt there was a chance he was going to be taken to the house. I mean, I think you had three or four punt returns for touchdowns in your career, something like that. I forget what the number was. Um, Four four total, three in the season, three during during regular season, one in the playoffs. One in the yeah. playoffs. Um, what? Yeah. Uh, but, but you know, I, I know what the answer to this is. But for those who haven't heard you say it, did you want to return punts? Did you ask for more punt returns? Obviously, Randall L was there to do it. You know, uh, you know, starting in two thousand six. But was that something that you asked more of or not? I just spoke on this yesterday, man. You asked me questions that is like fresh on my mind right now. You know what? I honestly have one regret throughout my whole career, not continuing to return or punts on a regular. And the only reason why I regret it, because when I look back, and I, did, I do a lot of this looking back stuff now that I'm retired. When I was playing, <laughs> I'm just full speed ahead. I, I yeah. never kind of reflect on things. I just, I just kept it moving. But the reason why I took myself off a punt return was because, you know, as a starter on the offense, you don't want to – Take, a, take, take that production away from your team. You know, I was trying to be very, uh, what you call, call it, um, I, I was looking, I was trying to be, like, I wanted to be the best I can be for the offense, being strategic. So I wanted to say, okay, if I get Nick being a punt returner, now you're taking away these, these yards and these touchdowns from the offense. So I just thought that, hey, if, the, if my punt return team isn't one of the best, Meaning, like, they're, you know, I thought we was, we was coached up well, but I didn't think the guys took it serious how they did when I was in New York. Hmm. In New York, the guys took it serious. They knew that, man, we give Tanner one, I mean, one little inch, he's going to take it, and, and, and it, it could be six. And when I got here the first year, I was taking too many licks. And I talked to Coach. Me and him sat down and said, Coach, I'm not going to lie to you. I love doing this. But I refuse to take the hits I'm taking if these guys not going to be serious about it. And what I mean by being serious, it's not all on them. Some of the guys were guys that were just coming off the field at from corner and or whatever else position, and they were sticking them out there and saying, now run downfield and block for Tanner. That's acting too much at times because these guys are already gassed because they're out there on defense and they've been ran up and down the field and they finally got to stop. Now they got to run downfield and try to spring me. So I didn't think it was fair. 
for those guys, and I also didn't think it was fair for me to get to not get their full effort. So I wish I would have stayed back there, but I think I did a great business decision by not because I didn't want to get myself hurt. And I remember being in that situation in New York, being hurt and couldn't be on the offense. So that's why I did it. Was but but Danny Smith was the special teams coach pretty much the yeah, entire time yeah. you were here, right? Yeah, Danny was my guy. Danny was the guy that, honestly, it's crazy that you bring up that name. When we had Randuel as a full-time punt returner, it was back in, um, I believe this was 07, 07, when um, I ran on the punt return. I think it was 08, 07, 08. We was in Detroit. I'm not sure what year yeah, it was. D- d- Detroit, Detroit was, the, uh, was the Zorn year, was the first Zorn year, I'm pretty yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so Danny asked me, like, hey, you want to go back there? And I'm like, sure, because now – I'm understanding that, hey, my offense kind of thrives off of me being, you know, in the game. Like, if I'm in the game, meaning that I got enough touches, the public terms used to give me those, those touches. You know, when, back when I was in college, that was what's so great about me in college because I've been around a punt return back, and then now the first ball you give me on offense, I might take it to the house because I'm already in the game now. You got my juices flowing. So then he threw me out there after I had done scored a couple of touchdowns. He like, man, we need a spark on punt return. And I ended up running it back. And so that's when we started saying, okay, Tanner, you might not want to be back there every play, but we're going to put you back there at time when we need spark. So, you know, that was something that me and him came up with due to the fact that I wasn't kind of sure about being out there every time they punted because I just didn't want to risk that for my offense or risk it for myself. So, you know, the game you're referring to, because I just pulled it up on Pro Football Reference, Detroit, remember, mm-hmm. hadn't won a game in forever and, and would eventually in 2009, I think, end their losing streak against Washington. But in that particular yeah, year, so. 2008, um, two things about that game. First of all, it was a close game. It was a one-score game when you returned the punt in the fourth <laughs> exactly. quarter for 80 yards for a touchdown. And mm-hmm. you guys ended up winning the game. And that also, remember, Zorn's first year, that was the game that got you guys to 6-2 and two, at the halfway yep. mark, and then the, um, yep. and the next two games were Pittsburgh and Dallas at home. One on Monday night, one on Sunday night, and the one against Pittsburgh was when that was the first game, Tana. That being in that stadium, it was like, oh my god, what happened? It was like terrible towels everywhere. Mm-hmm. Do you remember yep. that? I remember the night vividly. I remember it vividly, and I remember. I remember because uh, we, it was a Monday night game. And see, I'm glad you brought it up because that's something else I can add to it. So think about it. I ran a punt back. I had a, uh, a fabulous game. I, I played well on offense and, you know, on special teams. But I nicked my hamstring. So that was one of the reasons why I didn't want to put so much on me because if I never run that punt back, maybe that hamstring is still intact. And so we go out and play Pittsburgh. Yes, I rest that whole week, but I'm playing on a – slightly tore hamstring, which I couldn't be 100% on, and we get killed. You know what I mean? Pittsburgh gave it to us. So that's another reason why I used to make those business decisions because I felt like, look, I know I can run these punts back. And true, I, I don't want to be taking, you know, those shots when I don't need to. But my hamstrings at the time, you know what I mean, just being a guy like, you know, Jerry Clark, so that's what made me, remind, you know, he was telling me at one time, I reminded him, of himself because of the hamstring problems and just being a guy that you can always count on, but we kind of deal with the same thing. That's what made me not want to risk it a lot because I'm like, man, I went out there and had a great game, had a touchdown on offense, had a touchdown as a punt returner, but I, you know, I took my hamstring. 
Well, you had in that Detroit game nine catches, 140 yards, a touchdown from 50 yards out from Jason, and then had the 80-yard punt return. Um, You know, you just mentioned business decisions. I always felt like, and I don't know, maybe I've asked you about this before. I can't remember. I always felt like Antoine Randall when they brought him here and signed him to that big free agent contract, and he was, you know, a a do-everything player and a big-time punt returner in Pittsburgh, I remember saying, he's not the same punt returner here. He's making business decisions. He doesn't want any part of of these punt returns. And I always felt that way, and it was such a big disappointment because he was such a great returner in Pittsburgh. What people sort of realize, and that goes back to just how, how folks are blocking. You know, Randall L. style of running punts is he's going to make you miss a whole bunch of times, and then before you know it, he tired you out, and then now he's running down the sideline. He didn't have the breakaway speed that I had, but he was, he was cat quick, and he's going to do a lot of juking. Me, I was going to make that first guy miss and put my foot in the ground and say, now nah, come run with me, you know, and that's some of the things that was different about us. And, you know, I remember – you know, it's crazy bringing up so much stuff that I just spoke on, you know, recently. You know, now think about that time when Randall L. and Brandon Lloyd came in, got these big deals. Now, remember, they got the same amount of money I got, and I just had $1,000 in New York before I got there and then gave them 1,400 yards the first year I was here. Right. So just think about the players today. If that was somebody who was getting the money that I was getting, when you think it'd be some kind of you know turmoil oh, going yeah. on that you bring in two guys that haven't had a thousand yards yet in this league, but you give them the same amount of money that you give them one of your your uh, considerably star receivers, you know? So that's something that shows you too where my mind was at back then. Like back then, I didn't care about your pocket, your pocket. That's how to win these games, and you know that was one of the reasons too that made me you know ease away from pump returning because I knew Randall L can do it, and I was hoping that. He was going to be that same guy that he was in Pittsburgh with us. By the way, don't forget, they traded for Brandon Lloyd. You know, it wasn't just that yeah. they 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 signed him and paid him all that money. They traded draft choices for uh, uh, Brandon yeah. Lloyd, and that was the offseason where they also signed Adam Archuleta and 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 basically yeah. made him a yeah, punt 40, protector. 40 yeah, after a few <laughs> games. All right, back to Jahan Dotson for a moment. So you talked about, like, the separation. I actually think this is interesting, and I'm sure I've talked to Cooley about it in the past, but for a wide receiver, what is the most important thing at the line of scrimmage or in a route to creating that separation, making it easier for your quarterback? Is it speed? Is it quickness? Is it sort of the basketball feet and, and eyes and moves? What is it that, that is more important than anything else for a receiver in creating separation from a defender, a good defender? I think what you have to do now is um, talking about business decisions, talking about being just, you know, or being very strategic. You have to set a guy up. You have to give a guy something that he saw before and use almost every other route off that same stem. That's something I learned from uh, Curtis Johnson, who was a, a New Orleans Saints coach for, for a long time for the receivers for a while. He just, he just um, stopped being a receiver coach when, you know, Peyton just, uh, you know, uh, stopped coaching. But, he taught me in college to have at least, you know, six things that I, six ways to get off the line of scrimmage, but use the same stem on most of my routes that's down the field. So when I run this stem, I'm giving that DB the notion of I'm running something that he saw before. 
Now, like I said before, I've always said this, you know, the folks when they ask me about one-on-one, they ask me about who was hard. One-on-one, I should always win. You know, one-on-one, so as a receiver, no matter you press me, no matter you off, nowadays you see a lot of these guys being off. They don't put hands on that much no more. You should always win when you have one-on-one. And if you've given a guy something that he saw before, that's what makes Devontae Adams so well. He gives you a stem of a – he's going to run the same route, and then now, you, now at the top of that route, bam, boom, and he's out, and he's, he's breaking out instead of breaking in. So that's one of the things that I would say. I would say you give him that same gear or two that you – you normally have coming off the ball, and then you give them a stem that they saw earlier in the game or just a moment ago. Like they, you could have ran a dig route uh, two plays ago, and you ran a, a inside release. So now that guy, good, he he he's tired as all outdoors, and you give him that bam boom off the line of scrimmage, and you run inside. The first thing he's gonna say is, "Oh man, I got I got dig. He just ran this two plays ago." And when you put that foot in the ground to make him think dig, and you slide somewhere else, he's he's beaten every time. So. That's what got me open a lot because I use similar stems and I use my gift. I use my speed. And if you ask Cooley, Cooley can, you know, tell you too, one of the things that I did well was coming in and out of my break. A lot of folks can't put that foot in the ground and be able to come out and separate at the same time. Most guys slow down, drop their hands, do all that type of stuff. I was very good at cutting pattern and getting out of my breaks and getting out of my cuts and, you know, ready for the ball. How much that that makes a lot of sense? What you talked about, especially you know, changing it up from what they've previously seen and kind of you know fooling them. How much does do eyes play into separation? Like being able to throw somebody off. Does a defender look at your eyes, your chest? Where is a defender, a corner, looking when he is when he's got when he's in man coverage? Most of the time, when I was young, they, told, they always told us they're looking at our hips. You know, DBs would tell them, I'm looking at your hips. I'm watching your hips. But they're watching. They have their periphery on. They're looking at you through your eyes and watching your legs at the same time and watching the quarterback. They have too many jobs. So, at the end of the day, like I say, that's why you see some of the guys who's doing it well nowadays. Like, I love Odell Beckham. I like the kid up there, Jefferson, up in Minnesota. Right. Um, I like his his counterpart, who's up there in um, in, in Cincinnati. The, oh, uh, Jamar Chase. Guy, yeah. If you, if, yeah, Chase. If you watch the way they run routes and you watch the decisiveness that they have at the top of their break, they might give you a little hip action because the DBs are watching it. They don't give you a little hip just so you can bite, and then they'll give you that same hip again for you to bite again and then break, you know, break elsewhere. And to me, I think if you can do that, maintaining your speed, that allows you that allows you to be a great route runner. When you can maintain uh, whatever you might be, if you're a four-four guy, if you can maintain that four-four speed and still do some of the things that we do well when it comes to getting and out of, getting in and out of our route. That makes you dynamic, and that's what's hard for defensive backs to be man-to-man and not hold and not tug and not put something on you because it's impossible for you to be. Deion Sanders, and they, I don't understand how he was he was himself for so long, man, to be able to run with guys, stop on a dime, change the direction, and still be there to attack the ball and sometimes take the ball, you know, from the guy and go back you know, the other way and put up six. So it's not a lot of DBs out there that's doing that. Now, it's a lot of good ones out there. I still watch a lot of them. But, man, it's impossible to cover a guy man-to-man without somebody over the top helping you because it's just it's a win-win for us all the time. Who's the best corner you've ever faced? Who was the guy that you really had a difficult time with? 
it's hard to say, man, because you, I, man, trust me, like I tell folks all the time, I played against guys with no name, man, and it was a fucking, <laughs> it was a brawl, you know, because of what they had up front. I felt the best defensive front always had gave me trouble at the cornerback position. Didn't matter who that guy was. If you had a good defensive front that was going to get out to our quarterback, I'm covered because now the quarterback has to come off of me or he has to get rid of the ball too fast, and I need my time. I need to be able to do what I do to get out of my breaks, especially if I'm running something downfield. So, uh, But to just give you something when it comes to those names that I might you, you might want to hear, um, the hardest time I had was with Revis, I, I think. Revis' rookie season, I went back to New York for the first time to play New York Jets. You know, I've been going back every year because we play the Giants there every year. Right. But it was my first time playing my old team, and I'm excited. I'm I'm geeked up about it. I'm like, okay, I get a chance to really play them. And, you know, I've been itching or not say itching. I've been hoping that whenever I do go back, I'm, I'm right mentally. You know, a lot of folks say, yeah, I can't wait to, you know, play the team that I came from. I want to do this to them. No, I'm not that guy. I care less. I cut the cord when I leave. You know, I'm not looking back at them. I'm not caring about what they're doing. And I hope whenever I do play them, mentally, I'm not thinking about them. You know what I'm saying? So at the time, it was perfect. It was Reeves' rookie year. I knew nothing about them. Didn't watch film on them. Didn't do none of that. You know, at one point in time, you know, I I tell the story all the time. I didn't want to psych myself out about a guy, so I didn't watch him. I watched the defense, and I watched the different formations they're going to be in. But I never paid attention to the defensive back or that cornerback that was covering me because I know it's not going to be one all the time. You know, I'm going to go on left. I'm going to go right. I'm going to go slot. You know what I mean? So I never want to get psyched out by somebody, you know, and feel that he has a chance. I like to be surprised. Surprise me come game day. So, boy, what, what, I was in for a surprise. You know, I get out there, and I hear I got a rookie. So I'm like, okay, he's a rookie. So he's not going to be on a lot of stuff that we're doing. But let me see what he got. And this guy followed me here and there. He didn't play me the whole game, man, the man. But I left that game, and I called a good friend of mine who I talk football with. He's my, he's my best friend, and we played together, you know, in high school, and, and, and he lived up here with me. And I called him. I say, man, he's a cornerback, too. I say, you didn't tell me about the kid uh, in New York. <laughs> who is that? He say, man, I told you. He said, you wasn't listening. I told you New York got the best cornerback that came in the draft, he's from Pittsburgh, his name is Revis. I said, you know, I wasn't listening because, boy, he just gave me the game of my life. But, you know, I had a good game. Um, I could have won the game if Jason Campbell didn't have a, a bazooka for um. You know, I beat him on a double double route, and I'm wide open, and he threw the ball in the stands. And I could that could have been the game when the touchdown. We ended up going to overtime, and I think we still won that game. But Revis gave me a run for my money, man. And I remember watching him every game after that, like, yep, you know what? It wasn't just me. He's that guy. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. uh, he's one guy that stands out to me that I didn't have to play all the time that I remember just thinking about him like, man, that guy was tough. He was solid. You know, most guys that give you a hard time is guys that can run with you. He didn't have the top tier speed I had at the time, but he was very good at the line of scrimmage. He was very good in running the scene that they was in, and he just seemed like he was sharp. He knew he was ahead of his time as a rookie. None of the coaches came to you, not Gibbs, not, you know, none of the offensive coaches came to you before and said, hey, this kid's a rookie, but this is a real talent. Nah. Nobody gave you any warning. Nah, but they, they didn't know either. They didn't know he was going to try to be Reeves like that. <laughs> All right. and, and honestly, 
Yeah. Honestly, when you got faith in the guys that you got that's that's been lining up yeah. and beating everybody that's in front of them, they're not coming to tell you about nobody else. They want to make sure that you're ready to go do what you do. You know, I remember. I remember that game because I think that was Clinton's biggest game of his career here. I think he went for nearly 200 yards. It was unbelievable. Gibbs mm-hmm. ran him into the ground, but he was unbelievable in that game. Yeah, um, he was. All right, um, back to the team currently. So you like Dotson um, and the weapons that they have with Terry and Dotson, and uh, assuming everybody's healthy, Curtis Samuel, Deami Brown, you know Logan Thomas, you know healthy, McKissick, Gibson, etc. How will Scott Turner use all of these toys? Because there's more wow. here in skill position talent than we've had in a long time. I don't think it's enough balls, honestly. <laughs> I mean, well, that's a good, when's that's the last good time anybody said that? Yeah, that's a good problem to have. I, you know, I, I really think um, Curtis Curtis is out for blood. You know, when you have a season that he had last year, especially when you come to a new team, that's one of the number one things you want to do. Like when I was coming from New York, ask Portis this. I mean, Portis would tell you I was staying with Portis the whole entire spring into the summer before I got my spot. And I remember Porter's just having, you know, gatherings at his house every other day. And I would go get lost. I would go upstairs in the room and lock myself in the room and just focus on the playbook and just you really know that, look, I haven't made a name for myself here yet. I know they just paid me big bucks, and that's already enough for me to, you know, be appreciative of. I need to come out and be the best I can be every time we step on that field. And all we was doing was OTAs at the time. And... Portis used to be pissed. He would come knock on the door like, bro, you mean to tell me you're up here locked in the room? I'm like, bro, y'all having a good time, I understand, but I want to go out here and perform tomorrow in practice so they can know what they got. And I think when I look back at Curtis, it wasn't his fault that he was dealing with what he dealt with last year, but I know the feeling of being that player. I know the feeling of can't represent or show the team what your true worth is because you're injured. And, you know, I saw him out there at times, and I was just tipping my head off to him knowing that he was out there. But I truly believe this year, man, uh, if he has an inch, if he's 75, 80% of what he was in Carolina, you know, be ready. We're talking about Dotson and talking about Terry. Hey, that guy there alone runs circles around some of the stuff that we saw on our offense in the past few years. So if you got him with, added with a Terry that's going on, what, his fourth year now and with those other weapons, just be ready, man. And that's what makes me say that Scott don't have enough balls for all these guys. But hopefully he, he he's going to put up a uh, have a well you know um, you know put together game plan to make sure he scares the crap out of every team we facing, knowing that they got to have something ready for all these dudes, knowing that they all are lethal weapons. Do you feel good about Scott Turner's ability to you know spread it around and really turn the the talent offensively into something? you know, upper tier in the NFL offensively? I think this league is a copycat league, and the more we try to sit there and worry about how good of an offensive coordinator is, I think that's too over, you know, that's overrated too. I think we don't, uh, Scott did a lot last year that surprised a lot of folks. I remember being in some of them games, I'm like, now you call them plays. But you don't have to really go that deep, man. You can just watch what the team did before you, and if it's not in your playbook, put it in your playbook. That's what we did in 05. I swear to God, I tell, I tell folks every day, in 2005, when I got here, I would come to the building every practice day, very early, before the practice even started, before we had meetings, and they would give me a rundown of everything the team who played, the team that we played this week, 
did the week before, and they would say, Tanner, can you run these plays? And I would say, yes, coach. Because I felt that I was one of those, that was one of my gifts too as a receiver. Being in, the, being in the frame that I was in, I had a gift to run every route, whether it was a route for a bigger receiver or a smaller receiver. I can do it because, one, I had hops so I can go up and get the ball, and then, two, I had all the skill sets that you want with a guy who can just get the ball right now and make something happen. So I saw that then. We won games literally with the other team's offense or passing game. <laughs> we would go away from our passing game and run. So say, for instance, for that – that cowboy game that everybody is, you know, oh, man, Monday Night Miracle. Right. That route I ran, I got that from Marvin Harris. He ran that against Terry, uh, not, not Terry again, uh, Aaron Glenn when I was in New York. Aaron Glenn was on my team. I, I told him, I said, Coach, Harris, he runs this route. Marvin runs this route every time. It's called Dino. He runs slant. I mean, he runs post, corner, post, and beats him every time. We need to put that in there. We put it in. And ever since then, those coaches would just give me plays from the other guys and say, run them, Tanner, because you can do it. Why do we wait so long in that game to run it, <laughs> it until the fourth quarter hey, down 13 nothing? That, that, was, that was the reason why we started, because I was pissed off, and I asked the same question, come fourth quarter. <laughs> quarter's come to me like, why are you mad? And I'm like, bro, I ran a million plays in practice that I gave them that we could be successful on, and I haven't ran one yet. And all I know is, you know, this is my second game as a skin because, you know, those days yeah, we call skin, so I'm going to say that. Um, Coach Gibbs come to me, and I'm kind of – that's one of the things I never wanted when, you know, as a player. I've always treated the coaches as they was, like, superior. Like, I never wanted the coach to come to me in the middle of a game and have to talk to me about anything. I tried to be that sharp on everything I did. I, I, I That was like your dad or your mom fussing you out by not cleaning your room when the – head coach got to come to you and talk to you about something. So here goes Gibbs walking to the bench, and he's looking at me the same way I'm looking at him. And he's like, you want to run Dino? I'm like, you asking me that now? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, coach. He's like, all right, we running Dino when we get the ball back. And boom, we get touchdown. And I come back, and I'm breathing all hard. And I'm like, well, at least I did something this game. And he comes back to me and says, hey, we get the ball back, we going at him again. I'm like, thank the Lord, and, and, and that's, you know, the rest is history. So I don't know why we waited so long, but I'm glad when we did do it, we went out there and executed well because that's what gave them enough confidence that this guy kind of gave us these plays. So let's start giving him stuff that we see other guys are running, and maybe he can do that also. It is one of, I would say, 
the top 10 to 15 most memorable games in franchise history. It's up that high on the list. And it was week two. You know, it wasn't a playoff game. It wasn't an NFC championship game. It wasn't a Super Bowl. But I'll never forget that night, nor will, you know, millions of of fans of this team. Because, well, I should say, many probably had turned it off. You know, it's like approaching midnight, and it's 13-0 in one of the most boring games of the year. Uh, But if you stayed up like I did to watch the end, it's one of the kind of just stand up and scream. I think my wife was sound asleep. She comes in, what's going on? I'm like, you're not going to believe what just happened over the last five minutes. Um, that was, that's an all timer. Uh, you know, you know how much I enjoy this when we do it. I hope you're well. Um, Santana's doing a bunch of stuff with NBC Sports Washington. Um, tell everybody else what you, I mean, are, you, you said you're doing something with Logan. That's on NBC Sports Washington, right? Well, we we uh, most of our shows are are are, are taped and at uh, in Ashburn, so we do the command center now. We have a new show there since we changed the name to the Commanders now. So our show is not no longer uh, Washington Football. Uh, you know, uh, I, I forgot the name because it's just that quick. We go through so many different names, yeah, but right. now it's me, Logan, and Julie. We are part of the new show called the uh, Command Center. So that's what me and Logan do together, and we break down different film here and there, and. You'll probably also see me on the podcast during the season called the Players Club. You know, I have my weeks when I'm on that. But um, I'm just loving being a part of the, you know, what's going on around here. I think, man, sooner or later, we're going to all be big, fat, and happy because we celebrated of uh, us finally getting over what we've been waiting on for so long and, 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 and actually getting a championship sooner or later. I'm I'm just that guy. I'm going to speak it because I feel like if you don't speak it, it don't, it don't happen. So that's what I'm here for, man. That's what I want. I didn't get it as a player. But, hey, I'm not going to win until we get it. <laughs> That's um, my word. All right. Good luck with everything you're working on. You know I appreciate it. Hopefully we'll do this again maybe right before the season starts. Thanks. No doubt. Anytime. Thanks for having me, buddy. Up next, uh, one of my favorite uh, Twitter follows is the Capital Weather Gang. Most of you know I have uh, an obsession with weather, specifically winter weather. But it is going to be brutally hot this weekend, perhaps record-setting hot. Jason Salmonow from Capital Weather Gang will join us next. And then Eddie C. uh, will follow Jason to talk about the Preakness and give us his picks for the second leg of the Triple Crown when we come back, right after these words from a few of our sponsors. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It is going to be hot uh, this weekend. It's hot today. If you're listening to this on Friday, it's going to get even hotter tomorrow. And it is my pleasure to welcome on to the podcast for the first time. I think I've had people in the past from Capital Weather Gang on. I'm a big fan of the Washington Post's uh, weather site, the Capital Weather Gang, at Capital Weather, by the way, 
on Twitter. Uh, Jason Samanow is part of the whole forecasting group. He runs the Capital Weather Gang Twitter account, um, and he wrote yesterday, which is what made me think to call you to have you on about this unusual heat wave. I'm usually, Jason, uh, uh, you know, I know you know a little bit about my my weather fascination. Um, it's more about winter weather for me, but I was curious about this weekend because you wrote about it being record-setting, et cetera. So for those that are getting ready to feel heat for the first time after a relatively cool spring, what are we seeing this weekend? Why are we seeing it? And will it be a record setter for May? Yeah, sure. So it's all getting started today, of course. And uh, actually, just to uh, get things rolling, I wanted to thank you for having me on. But uh, yeah, today, uh, the heat is starting to build. Uh, we'll see highs up around 90 today. There's some question about whether the cloud cover streaming in from some of those thunderstorms to the west will actually hold temperatures down just a little bit today. But um, still looking at 90, maybe the low 90s today. Um, and so we'll hit 90 for the first time um, this year. And that's actually a little later than normal, but uh, we'll really turn things up tomorrow. That's going to be the hottest day. And we're looking at highs in the mid to upper 90s. And the record high for tomorrow in D.C. is 96. And we could very well get there. Uh, we could even hit 97. And if we do that, if we hit 97, that would be the hottest so early in the season on record. So that would be um, pretty notable to be so hot so soon. And even on Sunday, it's going to be hot as well, 90 to 95. You know, this, these temperatures are about uh, 15 to 20 degrees above normal. So, um, yeah, one of the more exceptional heat waves we've seen so early in the year. So why is it happening? Well, you know, uh, there, there are several factors at play. Uh, there's a low-pressure system out in the um, out in the Midwest and the uh, counterclockwise circulation around that is acting like a heat pump and pushing this heat, which has been building in Texas for days. I mean, it's been brutal there. Um, San Antonio has been like over 100, you know, four or five days already uh, this year, more than they did the entirety of last year. Um, Abilene, Texas has seen its uh, some of its hottest weather. Dallas has seen its hottest May weather. So it's been brutal there. And, you know, of course, they're worried about the power grid there and ERCOT and all those things. But, um, yeah, so a lot of that heat, which is building down there, it's getting pumped up in our direction. And it's not only that, but, of course, we have this long-term climate change trend. And so anytime um, we have a hot weather pattern, it's probably going to be just a little bit worse than it would have been, you know, 30, 50, 70 years ago. And that's going to continue as we pump greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. So, yeah, climate change is definitely intensifying our heat wave. I mean, we've seen that. We've seen a lot of these brutal heat waves in recent years. Uh, some of our hottest summers on record, uh, you know, in the last decade. And this is just going to continue. Well, yeah, and it's part of the discussion that it's actually producing the extremes on both ends, on the hot and the cold and the stormy. You know, that's why, and you guys have done a better job than anybody, you know, over the years of documenting these massive winter storms that we've had. I mean, you know, the, the winter of 2009, 2010 being perhaps the all-time greatest winter in the history of this town, if, you, if you're into snow storms, which I am, um, you know, that we, oh, it was we, epic. Yeah, we, it was yeah, incredible. We, yeah. We, we, we see that stuff as well. Now, what, uh, one of the things about this weekend, you know, anybody that has a weather app has been seeing these special weather statements popping up, and you get those this time of year because it's the first time that you get heat. Um, 
It's going to be really hot. It's going to be record-setting hot. You told us why. Will there be the typical D.C. oppressive humidity, you know, and heat index associated with this heat, or will it be not as bad as it would be, say, in July or August? Yeah, that's a great question. The humidity will be higher than normal for May, um, but the humidity won't be as bad um, as it would be if this same heat wave occurred in July. So we're looking at um, dew points, which are a measure of humidity in the mid-60s, which is moderately humid, but um, the really brutal dew points are over 70, 75. We see those in July. We're not seeing that this time around. And so actually, we are not under a heat advisory. And we get a heat advisory when the heat index, how hot it feels, is 105 or higher. We'll probably see heat index values around 100. But the humidity will add a few degrees to what it feels like outside, but it's not going to be as bad as it could be. Now, interestingly, it's going to be worse to our north. Um, Philly, Boston, New York City, they're all under heat advisories because the core of the heat actually is going to be uh, in New England and, and, and in the interior northeast. Really? That, that's unusual. So how, yeah. how hot will it be in New York, Philly, and Boston this weekend? Just a few degrees hotter than here. Um, not a lot. I mean, I don't think you're going to notice a big difference between the cities. But in those areas, the threshold for a heat advisory is a little lower. I think it's around 100, whereas it's 105 here. Right. So um, they don't need it to get quite as hot to be under a heat advisory. But even so, I think it will be a couple degrees hotter up there. That's where the core of the heat dome is going to set up. So uh, it'll be a little bit hotter. But as I said, I don't think it'll be that noticeable. Everyone, you know, from Richmond to Boston, even up into uh, northern uh, New York State, uh, parts of Vermont and New Hampshire, they're going to see temperatures well into the 90s up there as well. We're talking to Jason Salmonow. Jason is with the Capital Weather Gang. I think anybody that lives in town uh, is, you know, a follower of Capital Weather Gang. You should be, um, you know, especially for big-time weather events. They they essentially will be documenting it um, minute by minute, Um during these events and providing updated forecasts, which are are always the best. Um, So I think, you know, an obvious question would be, since we're going to set records here in May uh, with, with, with heat, what does it portend in terms of the rest of the summer? Is there any link to what we're going to see the rest of the summer? Is it going to be a brutally hot summer because we're seeing this in May? Great question, and uh, it's interesting because the uh, National Weather Service, they put out their uh, their summer temperature outlook yesterday, and they do favor above-normal temperatures uh, for much of the eastern U.S. In fact, for pretty much the entire country, uh, they're calling for uh, high odds of a hot summer. So uh, I think we better get used to it. Um, and, you know, it's a situation where it's very unusual now for us to have a cooler-than-average summer just because our, uh, our our temperatures are trending up because of the climate change influence I, I mentioned earlier. So, um, you know, once in a great while, we'll get we'll get a reprieve. You know, last summer wasn't the worst. I, th- I think we were still above average. I, th- I think actually we had 48, 90 degree days last year. So that was above average, but it wasn't as bad as it has been some years. So, um, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, um, I think like, you know, any sort of um, consistent cool summers or, you know, series of cool summers, that's, that's not going to happen every year. We're going to face brutal stretches of heat and humidity, and it's just going to be a question of how bad. Is it record-breaking or is it just, you know, a little bit above normal? And I think um, we're going to issue our own uh, D.C. summer outlook uh, 
towards the end of the month, and we'll have more specifics then. But yeah, I definitely lean towards hot. What uh, what kind of hurricane season is being projected for uh, you know, not only the Gulf but the Atlantic, and and you know, the potential for something in the north, you know, the northern Atlantic states, mid Atlantic states. Yeah, yeah, several, yeah, several, several uh, research groups which do uh, hurricane season a lot looks have have come out with their uh, predictions and. Uh, they're all, there's a consensus that this is going to be yet another, I think it's going to be the sixth or seventh in a row uh, active hurricane seasons. Uh, so that means we're going to be tracking a lot of storms. Uh, waters in the Gulf of Mexico, they're already warm. Um, so uh, there are uh, concerns that we're going to have another difficult season with a lot of storms threatening uh, the United States. You know, where they hit, that's a wild card. You never know where they're going to hit until, you know, three to five days out, typically. So, um, you know, maybe we'll get lucky and there'll be a lot of fish storms, you know, storms that stay over the open ocean rather than hitting land. But the deck is stacked. We're in a La Nina. Um, wind shear is going to be light. So uh, the storm should be able to develop pretty well. And uh, we'll probably see a good number of them, unfortunately. Um, all right. Uh, that leads me to this, this final question. I know we're still in a La Nina year and there's nothing worse in the winter yeah. months for people like you and and me to hear uh, about a storm that's a fish storm. We don't want fish storms in the winter if we've got cold air in place. We want the right track up the Atlantic seaboard so we get big snowstorms. I know La Nina was, you know, what it was last year, and that maybe a moderate or a weakening La Nina would end up being sort of advantageous if you want a cold and stormy winter. I know it's only May, but tell me right now what your first gut is on the winter of 22 and 23. Yeah, you know, I'm not encouraged. It seems like we might get a triple dip La Nina, which means a La Nina for the like basically the third straight year. Right. And a La Nina, La Nina is uh, associated with uh, lower than average snowfall in D.C. So um, you know, if you compare El Nino to La Nina, El Nino events uh, on balance will give you more snow. Now, as you know, being a weather enthusiast, you know, every La Nina and every El Nino is different. And you can have El Ninos in which you get shut out and you get basically no snow and you can get buried in a La Nina event. I mean, 96, which was one of our best snow years on record, was uh, was a La Nina year. So, um, but, on, but on average, yeah, I mean, if, if we have La Nina for a third straight year, um, you know, the odds are stacked against a big snow winner, but you can't rule it out. You know, you, we'll have to just see how the pattern set up. As we get closer, uh, you mentioned '96. That is, are are you, Jason? Are you from here? I am. Yeah, I was here for that. Okay, so that that's that's my favorite of all time. The ninety, the Jan, the early yeah. January '96 storm is my all time yeah. favorite. You know, the cold air was locked in place. It was frigid during the storm. You know, we had, uh, you know, ultimately 26, 27, depending on where you lived. And then, by the way, we, you know, four or five days later, we had another 10-inch-plus snowstorm. That week, you know, and and look, 09 and 10 were great because we had the blizzard in December, and then we had the back-to-backs in February. Um, And you you guys have names for all of them. I kind of forget the names. But uh, since you're from here, what's your all-time favorite winter storm? You know, I think it has to be the uh, probably the second uh, uh, blizzard following Snowmageddon, that second February storm from uh, 2010. What was great about that is that um, those were the most extreme winter conditions I've ever seen in the D.C. area yeah. because it was, you know, we already we already had, you know, like 20 inches of snow on the ground. 
And then it's just dumping. The wind is blowing. I mean, that was a true blizzard, and the temperatures were crashing. Um, and if you remember that event, it didn't look that great when you went to bed that night. Um, I guess it started as like a, a snow or a wintry mix, and it had kind of the temperature had gone up to like 33, and it transitioned to like a drizzle. But then the the low bombed off the coast, and we just got hammered uh, starting late that night into the next day, and um, the temperatures crashed. The wind was howling. And, I mean, you don't see scenes like that in D.C. like we saw that day. I mean, no one could go anywhere. I mean, it was just, it was, the landscape was utterly transformed. It was like you were in Siberia. It was unbelievable. I just remember going out for a walk in it and thinking, I may never see something like this again in D.C. Because it was like, it was like 18 degrees. Snow was blowing sideways. The snow was up to your waist walking through it. It was just awesome. And so that, for me, was my favorite. And also, one of the great things about that snowmageddon winter is all three of those snowstorms were basically all snowstorms. You didn't have it changing to sleep for an extended period of time. You know, the 96 storm was a big disappointment for me for one reason. I was in Falls Church, and we, we went over for sleep to sleep for hours during that storm um, in, in Falls Church. I mean, maybe if you're out by Dulles, it stayed, stayed all snow out there. But uh, the 96 storm, I mean, we still got 20 inches, but... We lost probably, you know, four to six because we had sleep. So, you know, as a huge snow lover, I was really bummed about that in 96. Well, we really lost a lot in the March Superstorm of 93 because of the... Oh, yeah, uh, that, was, that yeah. was awful. That, that, that was, I mean, considering what we were projected to get and ultimately got. It's interesting. The 96 storm, I, I think more in terms of there was that lull, you know, late Sunday, yeah. and then all of a sudden, yeah. late Sunday night and Monday morning, you had something equivalent. Now, it was on the wraparound more um, where yeah, we got... Yeah, we got buried on the wraparound. The the February twenty, the second storm in February of twenty ten, what you described is so true. I'll never forget just opening up the front door of my house, walking outside, and and saying to my wife and young children, "I don't know that you'll ever see true blizzard conditions like this. This is an actual blizzard. You know, the winds were howling, heavy snow, and look, we didn't get as much in terms of accumulation with that storm." that we had gotten with the one a few days earlier, you know, the Super Bowl weekend storm. Yeah. Um, but it's, but still, it, it was, was like 10 inches, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was yeah. awesome um, during those several yeah. hours. And you might be right. I mean, I think we've had blizzard conditions during 96. I would say that Sunday night into Monday morning had to be blizzard conditions. Um, but I, I don't know if we ever had it. And by the way, those conditions happened during the daytime, too. So it yep. was pretty cool to sit out there and watch what really was awesome Mother Nature. Yeah, well, I walked to Wisconsin Avenue in northwest D.C., and it was a ghost town. And, I mean, everything was just covered, and it was just unbelievable. I mean, you know, this was like in Friendship Heights. I was walking up there, and it was right. just like it was like the only one out there. You know, <laughs> there were no cars. Um, it was it was like late afternoon and it was, you know, pretty dark out. Just, it, it, it was uh, pretty surreal to be out in that. Uh, and we did, by the way, have true blizzard conditions in the 2016 storm. Oh, yeah, Saturday of course, afternoon. of course. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 2016 storm was pretty good, too, and, oh, and that yeah. one stayed all snow. That was, so that was, uh, yeah, I mean, we've, you know, we're fortunate in the last few decades in the D.C. area that we've lived through, you know, several of our biggest biggest snows. So it's been a pretty, pretty good uh period for us of course we've been uh we haven't seen much since 2016 so we'll have to 
Right. See if we can change that up. Yeah, I mean, like, there's one friend in my life that's as um, as nerdy uh, on this stuff and wants it as much as I do. And we've, you know, we've had conversations about the last couple of years, and it's like, well, would you give back, you know, January of 2016, you know, for more sort of steady winters or, you know, give back 2010, you know, to, no, because those storms are what, what people like me and then, you know, experts like you live for. You know, so I would take a couple of winters of not much for what, you know, uh, every four or five years having a chance at a big one. And we've had chances at some big ones, you know, over the last couple of years that just haven't materialized. Um, Yeah, January 3rd this year wasn't bad. I mean, of course, you know, they got they got a foot down in Fredericksburg. And of course, there was a whole I-95 fiasco. But what what we get here from that about five to seven, I think. So it wasn't a bad storm. Yeah. And we and we had the one um, 2019, right? January of 2019, which was a super long duration event. And we ended up with, you know, maybe 10 inches, but it lasted for 24 plus almost 30 hours. I, that was a good one. And yeah, it was... it snowed for a, yeah, it snowed a long time in that event. I, I don't think a lot of people remember it because it was over a weekend, so the impacts were not – it didn't really interfere with much. And I think, you know, we were able to return back to normal pretty quickly, bounce back after that one. Yeah, I kind of always feel like that the area gets a super bad rap when it comes to – Look, we're, we're a transient area, which means, you know, many of the people who are transients don't come from cold weather cities. But personally, I feel like those of us that are from here, that have lived here our entire lives, you know, the first one's always a pain in the ass, Jason. But usually by the time yeah. we get to the second or third one, people do okay. I mean, I, I'm I'm always very, very, you know... Uh, I, I laugh at the school systems for what they will shut down for in our area. And I think there's this expectation that most people can't handle it. I personally think we do better um, than most. Um, and by the way, we end up with a lot of ice in different situations that other, you know, Midwestern and colder cities don't deal with as much. But anyway, I, I think you and yeah, I could talk about this for hours. Absolutely, yeah. And sometimes it's the small events which are most disruptive, uh, you know, because of the timing or, um, you know, roads not being pre-treated. And, you know, you, you see sometimes, you know, you get you get a dusting at the wrong time and with temperatures freezing and you end up with gridlock. But, yeah, I mean, um, you know, I, I agree that, uh, you know, sometimes I think we, um, we panic too much and the school systems don't give people enough credit. But, uh, uh, you know, I, th- I think... We do get a bad rap, maybe undeservedly. I, I agree with that. Um, I don't know how many of you all listening um, were into what Jason and I were just talking about, but I don't really care because we enjoyed it, and we could have probably done it for another <laughs> uh, 30 minutes and talked about the various storms. Like, you sound young enough to, to not remember the, pre- you know, the, the actual uh, Washington uh, birthday, which wasn't President's Day back then in 79, and one of my all-time favorites was the 83 storm in February where the temperatures during the storm were literally in the low teens throughout that storm the the february 83 which is the first time i ever remember um uh thunder snow uh, i was in college park as a student uh as a freshman and it was there was literally lightning and thunder as we were outside playing football uh during that that snowstorm that was a good one too hopefully yeah. 
Go ahead. Well, I, w- I was just going to say, 80, 83 is the first big snowstorm I remember. I was seven. Now, 79 storm, I was just three. But, uh, yeah, the 83 storm, I, I definitely remember that <laughs> one and being out in it. And it was it was awesome. But um, for me, actually, sort of the uh, the, the storm, which uh, is, you know, like, w- w- was incredible, was the 87 Veterans Day storm. And we had thunder, snow, and lightning, three-inch an hour rates. That was, that was pretty incredible. I will never forget it. It was, you know, I was out uh, with a bunch of friends, ended up uh, back at the house of a friend of mine. Uh, we all woke up the next morning and there was a foot of snow on the ground on Veterans Day in November, um, which was nuts. Uh, there are a lot of them. I mean, January 2000 was yeah. awesome. We could we could do this yeah. and maybe we'll do this, yeah, you know, when, sure. we, when we get to winter. But uh yeah, yeah, have me back for a winter, uh, a winter combo. Yeah, because, because that, that'd be a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, because heat was really supposed to be the reason for the discussion today. Um, Jason, thank you so much, everybody. Not that you probably aren't there already, but follow uh, the Capital Weather Gang on Twitter, uh, and they'll have, by the way, all weekend long. I'm sure updates on temperatures and pictures, etc. Um, but Jason, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. You guys do a great job. Hey, thanks for having me. It was a blast. Take care. That was fun. I enjoyed that with Jason Salmonell from the Capital Weather Gang. Those guys do such great work. Uh, Let's switch it up to end the show. Eddie C., our triple crown expert uh, from both an analysis and a gambling standpoint, joins us now. But let's first relive the unbelievable long shot win at the Derby uh, nearly two weeks ago. And they're into the stretch, and it's Messier, Crown Pride, and Epicenter is coming up on the outside. Epicenter has taken the lead as they arrive into the final furlong. Sandin is coming after him. Epicenter and Sandin, these two, stride for stride. Simplification down the outside is next. They're coming down to the wire. Epicenter, Sandin, reach strike is coming up on the inside. Oh my goodness, the longest shot has won the Kentucky Derby. Rich Strike has done it in a stunning, unbelievable upset. All right, two weeks after the stunner at the Kentucky Derby, uh, it's Preakness Day tomorrow at Pimlico, hon. Uh, and Eddie C is on with us uh, at it's me Eddie C on Twitter. Eddie's a local, lots of friends in the Montgomery County era, uh, area. He spends a lot of time at Saratoga, lives in Florida, and he joins us right now. I mean, we can't go forward uh, until we go back um, and I get your thoughts on what was one of the more shocking results in a triple crown race in uh, you know in in almost a century what did you make of rich strike at the derby well first off as always kevin thank you for having me on appreciate it and it was great to finally meet you in person yeah we met and uh yeah yeah we got to meet and uh and it was great catching up with all my old uh kensington you know montgomery county boys that was great but um yeah, total shocker. And uh, the interesting part is when we did the show a couple of weeks ago for the Derby, Rich Strike was not in the field yet. He was a last-minute addition because there was uh, somebody uh, somebody scratched out of the race, and he got added Friday afternoon to the race. So they didn't even know he was running the day before. But they prepared for him and trained him. And uh, 
you know, and just to go back real quick to the Friday on the Kentucky Oaks, I was feeling great going into Saturday because we nailed uh, the, the, that race because right. we picked Secret Oats to win, and we had Neck coming in second. And that leads us to uh, the Derby race itself. And the two top picks I had were the were the three epicenter and the ten Zandon, and they were running down. It looks like it looked like it was going to be right to the wire, and then Rich Strike just came out of nowhere at eighty to one. I mean, you talk about a price, and I think the exact paid over three thousand dollars. Yeah. So, fortunately, me and a friend of ours, we were at the track at the, at Gulfstream Park in Florida, and uh, we literally had like uh, ten dollars left on the voucher. So we put two across on Rich Strike and did a one dollar exact <laughs> box with the three and the ten. Wow. So, it turned out to be a. It turned out to be a pretty good. That's night. awesome. Why? <laughs> so you, it was just we got ten dollars left on the voucher. Let's throw something together with the long shot, which never works. That's ex- exactly, it never works. But you know, fortunately, it worked this time. You know, it would have been so aggravating if you know it, it, it had come in and it wasn't one of the races where you just threw a couple of bucks. You know, putting the 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 long shot together with something. You know, it's funny because a lot of people that listen that bet like you do and and I do, um, and I don't bet the horses anymore. I used to many years ago, but um, you know, on a Sunday uh, during the NFL season, you know, it's twelve fifty five. You know, we're six minutes away from kickoff, and I, I know many of you out there will totally identify with this. It's like. All right, let me just put together like a a three team money line parlay on the biggest dogs on the board, you know? And it never exactly. comes through, but I'll tell you what, it comes through more in the NFL than it does in a horse race. That's for sure. What did you make of the run down the stretch? I mean, it was really incredible. It was like threading a needle the whole way. Well, I I would tell you and all your listeners if you haven't seen it, just Google yeah. aerial view it's of the incredible. Kentucky Derby. It, it's it's the greatest ride I've ever seen by a jockey that 99.9% of America had no idea who he was. And, it, I mean, he just, he was weaving through. He was very patient. He waited for holes to open up. And then when he turned for home and the rail opened up, the horse just exploded. Now, that also being said, they kind of walked home. I mean, they... they the, the last quarter of a mile was very, very slow. So, um, but, uh, but still, you had an 80-to-1 shocker in the derby. T- t- tell everybody about the jockey that ran Rich Strike and the trouble that he recently got in. I read about this maybe a day or two ago. Um, well, the okay, so the, the thing about the trouble is he got – he has to serve like a, I think it's a three-day suspension. I forget exactly how many days it is off the top of my head. But this happens uh, very frequently in horse racing where maybe a jockey got a little too aggressive on the ride and he, um, and he gets, you know, gets a small fine and gets suspended for uh, three days or a week not being able to ride again. Um, it's nothing... It, well, it's, well, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, it, it was described as being a. It was a. I'm reading it right now. Four day suspension for careless riding during a race at Thistledown, east of Cleveland, to which they determined he deliberately and aggressively. This is Sonny Leon. Is it Leon or Leon? However, right. it's pronounced. 
Um, I think it's Leon, but yeah, uh, Leon. Um, that he was deliberately and aggressively steering toward the rail to block other horses. My que- the reason I bring it up is, do you consider this in the aerial view of of the ride of Rich Strike in, in the Derby is amazing. Um, was there anything careless or de- aggressive or anything about that ride that, that was anything other than brilliant? Um, no, I, I, absolutely not. Like I said, it, it's the most brilliant, uh, the best ride that I can remember. I mean, and obviously there's been great rides before. Calvin Burrell coming down the rail with, uh, I think it was Mind That Bird, and he won it like 50 to 1. But no, this was just a... An, um, a, an impeccably just about perfect ride and there was nothing there was no aggressiveness or anything so tell me um or tell tell everybody including me why after that ride and that win rich strike is not going to be at the preakness um that that part is interesting um obviously it's a storyline because number one that eliminates a triple crown possibility of the horse of a horse winning the Derby, the Preakness, and the Belmont Stakes, um, but it's still kind of like a it, it's like an anomaly. Nobody really knows, you know. They claim the horse is healthy. They claim the horse is fine, and um, they just want to point them to different races. And you know, two weeks after running a mile and a quarter, which the majority of these horses will never run that long again, and having to come and run the Preakness, which is just a little bit, it's only like 110 yards shorter at a mile and three sixteenths. But that two-week period is pretty short. So my thought is, is that that race took a lot out of the horse, and maybe he didn't come out of it uh, 100% the way they'd like him to, and if he's healthy. But them also already saying that they're going to, uh, I think they're going to point him to the Belmont Stakes, actually. So they just wanted to get uh, a few extra weeks because the Belmont Stakes is a mile and a half. And after that race, just about none of these horses will ever run a mile and a half again. Yeah. So it's pretty grueling. So I think they're just resting them, that's all. I mean, I, I don't know the answer to this, and maybe I'm way off. But how much plays into the fact that the value of this horse will never be higher and that it can only go down from here? Uh, no, that's... That's true. Right now, the value is higher, um, and and I don't believe this has happened. But you know, there also could have been a private sale right after the Derby, and then if there's new owners or a new partner, you know, they cooperated together and decided, hey, let's just, you know, let's not abuse this horse. Let's take care of it because the stud value of this horse could be, you know, where they really make their money, and that could be the, you know, the the future view is like, hey, we're going to be able to get. You know, twenty five, thirty, fifty thousand dollars at at stud for this horse moving forward. All right, uh, handicap the Preakness for us. Um, Epicenter appears to be, you know, a heavy favorite going in. Uh, lot many fewer horses per usual than in the Derby. Um, what what should people think uh, be thinking about in terms of where their money should go tomorrow? Okay, well, you know, Epicenter who. Um, there's only a few horses that ran in the Derby that are coming back to run in this in the Preakness. Uh, the Derby always has 20 horses, basically. The Preakness has nine this year. Um, Epicenter, 
the heavy favorite, the eight horse at six to five, and deservedly so. Deservedly so. Um, everybody thought he was winning the Derby with a hundred yards left, and then all of a sudden, you know, he got passed. But um, you know, you've got four horses that are the top four horses in the field, and I think they really do all stand out. You got Epicenter, the eight horse at six to five. The second choice is uh, a Chad Brown trained horse who skipped the Derby called Early Voting, the five horse, and he's at seven to two. And then you have the Philly, Secret Oath, which is the four horse at nine to two. And then the one horse, Sim- Simplification, who also ran in the Derby and actually ran a pretty good race, uh, just had some early trouble and, and was running late. Uh, and he's at six to one. So, the, the race shape is going to be this, uh, in my opinion. You've got the three-horse Fenwick, the five-horse early voting, the seven-horse Argmanic, and the eight-horse Epicenter. They're your speeds, speed horses. So they should be the four horses out front. I think Epicenter should sit right behind those three. And the interesting thing on the seven-horse Argmanic is that was a horse previously trained by Bob Baffert. So... You're going to have three horses battling for the lead. And by the way, I, I should add that Bob Baffert is suspended from the Preakness, right. so he can't have a listed horse training. So they're, they're going to be your speed horses, and then you're going to have four horses, in my opinion, the one simplification, the two creative minister, and the four secret oath sitting right in that second flight of horses you know, behind the speed. And you could have, and then there's a long shot play that I'm going to use to come second and third um, is the nine horse skip, uh, Skippy Longstocking, which is just a fantastic name. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> but uh, Pip, he should be Pip, running. Pip, Pippi's brother, I believe. Um, yes, exactly. So what what is Skippy Longstocking? Uh, where where are the odds on that horse? Well, that horse at the moment, I want to say. Gosh darn it! I don't have it in front is of it, me. Is it is it the long shot? I don't think it is because I think uh, the horse that you mentioned as a potential early speed horse, Fenwick, is actually the long shot. Yeah, Fenwick is the longest. I think I think Skippy Longstocking's got to be like fifteen to one or something like okay. that. I just I I'm, I apologize. I That's don't right. have it right in front of me. Okay. So, um, but anyhow, uh, you know, I'm 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 going to choose a horse based on. I think it's going to be a little bit of a better price than than the favorite, and also it, it it's got a little heart in it because I picked her to win the Kentucky Oaks and she went off at six to one in the Oaks and that was a very nice win. So the way I look at it is I think um, I think the four secret or the secret oath the Phillies going to win the race, and the reason being there's two reasons why I think she's going to be able to sit right behind epicenter and maybe just you know hopefully just passes epicenter uh towards the end of the race and the other reason why i believe that is because she's a filly every horse every male every colt in the race is carrying 126 pounds um you know that's with the jockey and any added weight that they put on secret oath because she's a filly she gets a five pound weight allowance so she's only carrying 121 pounds that in a race this long is equivalent to, depending on who you ask, anywhere somewhere around three to four lengths. That's a huge advantage sure. for, a, 
you know, especially for a horse that could compete. So I'm picking at the center. I mean, I'm picking early voting, uh, secret oath, the four horse secret oath. Uh, I'm picking, uh, you know, epicenter is probably going to come second and third, along with simplification, in my opinion, the two horse, who I believe ran fourth in the Derby and was really moving towards the end. And then I'm going to add Pippi Lon stocking as a, as a, you know, as a price that's going to be at least 10, 15 to 1 in the race. And hopefully she, he completes an exact or trifecta just for value purposes. Gotcha. All right. So repeating, um, you like uh, Secret Oath, the Philly, to win it. Uh, Epicenter, um, you know, to be right there. And in terms of a longer shot to work into, you know, an, an exacta box, um, you'd, you'd go with Skippy Longstocking. Do you give, just for the purposes of, of even acknowledging it, and we have to after the Derby, do you give Fenwick the long shot in this race right now at 50 to 1, which is what I'm looking at? Do you give Fenwick any shot at all? I mean, uh, <clears throat> normally I would say no. no chance whatsoever. Right. But he's going to be out front, and if he gets if he gets the lead by himself, you know, horses get brave, but I don't see it. I, I just see the horse fading as they turn for home down the home stretch. I see Fenwick, the three-horse, and even early voting and Arg Magnick. I see all three of them fading. Early voting could end up third, but, I mean, again, I think the two horses, to me, that stand out are the four secret oath, the Philly, and Epicenter, the eight horse, uh, who's going to be a deserved favorite. And then I'm just trying to hope that maybe somebody can beat Epicenter at second place with simplification or Pippi Long, Pippi Long, uh, now I'm saying Pippi instead of Pippi Longstocking, you know, just to bring value to it. But those two horses are the standouts. Great job, as always, Eddie C. All right, follow him on Twitter. It's me, Eddie C., a legend uh, in K-Town, Montgomery County. That would be Kensington for those that don't know it. Um, And uh, I will talk to you hopefully before the Belmont, man. Thanks so much, and it was great meeting you the other day. Hey, same here, Kevin. Appreciate it. All right, that's it for the day. Uh, Thanks to Eddie C., thanks to... Jason Samanow, and thanks to Santana Moss for jumping on the show today. Have a great weekend. I'll be back on Monday.